0: Uh, Today I want to share with us, I think an important topic, as it relates to Christmas. To try to find, um, as I go through this message, I want you to try to find something uh, that just speaks to your heart, that you can relate to this week, thinking about the Christmas season. Uh, Christmas for us, and talking about the Christmas message, there's lots of great things that you can glean from it. We share this, this message today. I think there's several things you could focus on. Sometimes we focus on so many things we don't um, practically apply anything. And so I want to encourage you as we talk about today's topic, to, if God lays something specific on your heart, just to use that this week to meditate on, seek the Lord's face, and worship Him uh, during it. But, but one of the things I want to talk about with you today is, or really the only thing I want to talk about today is, uh, the, the adversity of what the holiday season represents uh, Christmas isn't always e- easy, and statistics tell us that people struggle more during the holiday season uh, than any other time of year. And being people of God and pursuing the Lord in our life, we're not—we're not. Uh, we're not escaped from any sort of challenge that might enter our lives just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean life's easy. In fact, some ways it can present extra challenges uh, to your relationships in this world. And so people struggle during the holiday season, and no doubt could be just a gamut of of, uh, an amen and a yes to that here today as we're worshiping. Sometimes you think about the holiday season, uh, a loss of uh, job could rub you raw, a loss of a loved one, a painful divorce. And you're kind of left with a question, well, what do you do, especially during this time of year where it's about hot chocolate, candy canes, warm hugs, and friends, and enjoying that time. There's now this adversity towards what Christmas is supposed to be, right? And with that becomes, you know, you have this ideal of what is and or what should be, and then you, you're where you are, and they don't. Match and, and it can cause us to feel depressed or just wrestle uh, with anxiety and, and the struggle of what the holiday season brings i 've heard it said that uh, someone mentioned that hope delayed makes the heart sick, and no doubt hope is a powerful force, but during the holiday season it it can dissipate. And so when we talk about hope and this holiday season and and how to approach it, especially if you're facing adversity or you know someone that is, I want to be clear in saying I'm not talking about this optimistic, just pump yourself up about the future. For some of us, things aren't okay right now. And, And I believe just to be trite about our struggles is not healthy. So when I share about hope today, I'm not trying to sweep it under the rug and get us to pretend like it doesn't exist. Some of us may struggle with even may, possibly seasonal depression or, or low-lying depression throughout our entire lives. And, and there are forms of Christianity. I don't, maybe I shouldn't call it Christianity where people teach, you know, if you had enough faith, those types of things would, would go away. I don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's healthy. And I don't think it should be a pursuit of our lives. I, I don't want to be trite and talking about our our struggles, but I I really want to just process through uh, how we could deal with adversity, especially during the holiday season. And and one of the reasons I think it's important to do that, uh, most particularly now, is because when you look at Christmas, and and especially the first Christmas that was ever uh, celebrated, it wasn't easy. And circumstances were less than ideal. And if you play some of the thoughts of the Christmas story in your mind, it's easy to recognize that. You think about Mary was a middle-aged teenager engaged to a, a young man in, in, in a similar age demographic. They had little money, resources. Joseph's now trying to figure out how to explain to his parents she really is a virgin mom, like how, how, how that's going to come across. Mary, nine months pregnant, traveling on the back of a donkey, wise men having to come hundreds of miles on camel across the desert to visit this Jesus. Mary gives birth in a manger among animals. She wraps Jesus in swaddling clothes. Some historians believe that the swaddling clothes were actually uh, utilized as burial cloth, meaning when, when people would go on journeys, they would often travel in caravans. And one of the things they would do is they would take strips of cloth and they would wrap it around their waist uh, like it was a belt. And if you ever went on a journey, especially during this time, it wasn't uncommon for someone just to kill over and die. And then you're left with the question, okay, we left their family here and we're meeting their family there. What are we going to do in the meantime? And so they would take the swaddling cloth and wrap up the body as if to somewhat temporarily mummify it to get it to where it needs to go to be with loved ones to give it a proper burial. And so when you're looking at Jesus being wrapped, he's literally wrapped in his grave clothes. Herod tries to kill baby Jesus and winds up chasing the family away. Several kids under the age of two are slaughtered in, in Herod's jealousy. Mary and Joseph are forced to, to flee to Egypt as refugees. And on top of it all, they're dealt the card of taking care of baby God. <laughs> I think of all the responsibilities in life I might have, if there's one I don't want, like, uh, God, how about... I be uncle Joseph and, and he go to my brother or something like that. But in, in this story, you, you see Mary and Joseph, these young first child. I mean, you think about, man, my own kids, I don't feel like I'm always getting right. I don't want to mess up baby God, right? So so Mary and Joseph, first kid out of the gate is Jesus. It kind of sets the unfair standard for the rest of the kids. Oh, Jesus always gets it perfect, doesn't it? But how, how do you deal with that? And when you think about their Christmas story, you think about, what we talk about as a Christmas story today, and you try to look back at that century, the first one that ever happened, it's like, how how did we get here with these ideals when that is what it represented? But you know in reality, and I, I don't wanna <laughs> I don't wanna say other people's pain makes me happy, but <laughs> I'm going to no. When you find other people going through similar circumstances or just adversity, Not only does your heart relate, but it brings you a little bit of hope. Like you're not the first person to ever encounter what you're going through. And you're not going to be the last. And and sometimes when we go through the struggles of our own life. We sort of feel that way, don't we, sometimes? You get isolated, you get depressed, you can sulk, you feel like you're on this island all to yourself. And then you look at this story of of Mary and Joseph unfolding and and you realize that adversity isn't uncommon. And in the midst of their struggle, they find hope. And today, that's exactly what I want to talk about, is it relates to this Christmas story in in the life of Joseph and and relate it to our own lives. I think a number of years here at ABC, we get to this Christmas season. We oftentimes do a series related to Christmas, sometimes a little longer than just two weeks. But we've talked about every character, I think, as it relates to the Christmas story at one point or another. But the one that we haven't discussed is Joseph. When you look at his life, Joseph was a a carpenter. He was a blue-collar kind of guy. We don't know a lot about him. Uh, Most scholars will say that the reason we don't know a lot about him is because most likely Joseph died while Jesus was fairly young. When you read about the life uh, of Jesus, you see Mary popping in and out of the story and and Jesus' brothers and sisters popping in and out of the story. uh, But you don't see or hear about Joseph. You you get a story of Jesus a little later on getting caught back at the temple teaching people and Mary and Joseph have to journey on. But after his early years of life and into his teenage years, you don't hear anything. He sort of disappears from, from the gospel record. But here in the midst of this Christmas story in the beginning stages of, of, uh, of Jesus' life as, as Joseph's there, as his earthly father you start to see how, how God works in the midst of this Christmas story to bring hope in adversity and I want to sort of unfold the story of, of Joseph here to, to help us discover in our own lives how we can make that application and, and recognize in, in the midst of their difficulty not to ignore it, not to pretend it doesn't exist but to find hope by the way, if you want to read the Christmas story this week, it's four chapters in the Bible. Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2, Luke chapter 1, chapter 2. Uh, you can take some time to go through the entirety of that story. But I'm going to focus on uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to start there. I'm going to look at six or seven verses here. And I just want to talk about it quickly, just make a point about each of these verses. And I'm going to step back from that and make an overall uh, statement as it relates to the context of the story and, and hope as, as Christmas unfolds. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary uh, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. I've already said, you know, what, what this story represents, but but Joseph here, no doubt, is in, in shock mode, right? I, mean, I don't know how this interaction would have gone down. I don't know how you can even broach this subject as a guy. Like, the, the story, the way it unfolds, did, did Mary come tell Joseph before Joseph recognized, or did Joseph recognize and have to try to bring up that awkward conversation? Like, I, I do not want to be in his shoes, but he comes to his wife and he's like, uh, it looks like maybe, you know? <laughs> like, if the answer is no, he's going to get killed. But but I'm I'm not mistaken here. You might be. (laughs) Finish the word for me, Mary. So so not only does he have the the shock mode in his own life of trying to figure this out. And then Mary responds, oh, yeah, I'm a virgin. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure, Mary. Uh, You know, think uh, out of all circumstances in life, guys, I'm just going to throw this out. 99.9% of the time probably not virgin birth, okay, right? So, but in this one circumstance, now Joseph's all of a sudden supposed to believe, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense, right? But but here he is in the beginning of this story, and it's sort of in this, okay, this is what you've got to deal with, Joseph. And, And then it goes on verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. I love what it says in the midst of the the struggle, um, you don't really get it in verse 18. You don't get the emotional side of this. You just get the statement, the fact. This is what happened. But you know behind this story, there has got to be this tension building in this guy's life. How do I do this, right? And you get to verse 19, you start to see that. He's like, I want to walk with God. And I know Mary ripped my heart out and, and I care about her. So, so I, I could just stomp all over her publicly. I, I could have her stoned, you know, but but I want to still honor her. And that's a hard thing to do when someone wrongs you to not just belittle another human being, but still recognize they're created in the image of God. So how, how do you deal with that? How do you still value someone that you, you feel like just broke your heart and is ripping at your life. Like, I know if Joseph were alive today, he would go to his bedroom in his house with his parents and he'd play every Taylor Swift song and just cry it all away. But, but how, how do you do this here? And, and so you see within the stories, the gospel stories told to us of, of the first Christmas, Mary's described as a godly young woman. Joseph, you see, he's described as a godly man, but recognizing we get the backstory of this, right? We know how this works out. Joseph's not there yet. And so he's, he's just saying in his life he wants to walk with the Lord, but then there's this tension. And he's just sort of leaving that tension there to try to figure out how, how to work through it, what's causing him uh, the pain in his life. And then he gets to, to verse 20. It says, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child whom has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. I like now in this verse, it's telling us how Joseph feels, right? He's saying, do not be afraid. You know, what would he be afraid of? Um, well, one, he's seeing an angel, right? That, like that, if, if that doesn't cause you to pee your pants, then, then maybe it's just realizing how when you now interact in life, like socially, there's some ostracism that could take place here. They live in a conservative society, right? And, and so Joseph knows Mary had to convince him as it relates to the virgin birth. And Mary's got, is been trying to tell him, this is, this is God's kid here. I'm telling you, I am faithful. And, and he, now he's thinking, um, you got the rest of society. You got mom and dad to convince. Like, and, but this angel appears and he says, do not be afraid. And then he begins to give the explanation as to why. And God's working out his his plan. But can I tell you, when it comes to our journey with God, we're much like Joseph in this story in that we don't always know how it's going to work out. But can I, can I also say, Anyone that's ever done anything significant in this world for the Lord. It didn't happen without a battle to invite, or to fight adversity to overcome or a sacrifice to make. When you go back throughout Christian history and you read about anyone that makes a difference for the Lord. The thing that makes them stand out is the faithfulness they carry through in the midst of Opposition. So one of the things that makes this Christmas story such a, such a beautiful story is Joseph here is, is afraid, right? And the next verse could tell us, and Joseph decided, um, God, you figure this out with somebody else, I'm out. <laughs> you know? and, and history writes him as a coward. And someone else inter- intervenes in, in Jesus' life, but that's not how the story goes. Joseph stands in the gap, he, he sees the adversity, he finds hope in the circumstance, and he lives for a greater purpose than just the, the, the day-to-day trial that may come through this circumstance. And so Joseph was afraid, but the, but the important thought is just to recognize when, when we do anything for, this Lord, for the Lord in this world, if it's going to make a difference, there, there's likely going to be a sacrifice uh, to make or a battle to fight. And so in verse 21, it tells us why this is important. Joseph, don't be afraid. Uh, she's going to have a child and it's, it's of God. And here's what's going to happen. This is why it's such a big deal. She'll bear a sign and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You're going to be a part of the greater story of redemption in history. Now, that it's specific with baby Jesus here in his life, but, but the same is true for you. You're a part of God's story of redemption in history. And so though, though the story might be told just a little bit different, the overarching story still rests in your life. And the significance of the story is now being told. You can be a part of this or not. But but the statement of, of the angel here is to, to bring Joseph in, in into this calling to recognize how significant this moment is that Jesus came to save. Now, now, the greater context of the Christmas story is this. Salvation. Now, it begs the question, from what? Right? And why does Jesus wear, wear that label, Savior? C- can I tell you, I don't, I don't think within our lives, we, we, in, in Christianity today, we just don't place enough emphasis in exactly what that word means. It's not sort of this kind of salvation that he brings of which all religions in the world might possibly create that sort of salvation. Uh, when it comes to Christianity, Christianity is the most inclusive and exclusive uh, belief system, I think, in the world. It, it, it's in, inclusive in the sense that God gives the invitation to you to embrace him. It's exclusive in the sense that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Narrow is the gate. So Jesus is saying, if you want to experience eternity with God, it's him. That's it. And if you want to experience an eternity with God, don't embrace him, and that's it. And so that means this word of salvation is very drastic. And so when you think about the Christmas story, as it's been told to us, and maybe you look at that story and you think, why would God choose such humble circumstances? If I'm taking care of baby Jesus and I'm Joseph, I'm like, I'd be telling God, God, I don't have that kind of money, right? I mean, he needs gold floors and pearly walls. And that is not me. I am a carpenter with two bucks to my name because I'm just getting married for the first time, right? This is not this is not the, to, to impress, but what Jesus is demonstrating in his life is the need for us to be served. And he's taking up the lowliest position, being born in a manger for us to recognize just how drastic of salvation he's bringing into our lives. You will not grab a hold of Jesus Without recognizing how much you are in need of Jesus. And if He just becomes something in the melting pot of religion to you, then there's no value in Him. And honestly, there's no point in Jesus. Why would Jesus come to earth to die on the cross? Why would God do that? Lest there were a drastic need. We need rescued, right? We need salvation. We need forgiveness from God. I heard somebody, somebody posted this this past week, and it's one of the things I appreciate from um, Vadi Bachman. But he was talking about a young man who was asking the question, how do you deal with um, pain in this world? Like, how can there be a good God when there's so much suffering? In fact, on our website at church, we have this place where you can go and ask questions. And this week, one of the questions sent to me was, was that question. How, do you, how can there be a good God when there's pain in this world? And he just flipped the question. And, and he simply said, you know, you need to ask the question differently. And that is, if there is a good God, why does he allow you to live? If God knows what you did yesterday, if God knows the anger that you've demonstrated in your life and the vengeance, the hatefulness, the way you've treated people, if God could see all that, and God is a holy and good God, why would that God allow you to live? If his heaven is perfect and you're not, If he treats with love, if he wants to experience joy and you and your life have spewed venom, why would he allow you to exist? So when you think about it in terms like that, that word savior becomes much more magnifying because it demonstrates a God that knows we are sinful but still comes to save us and causes us to, to have the opportunity here to embrace him through this story that God, in the midst of this mess, God still cares. So it says, he he shall, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And it's just saying, because this isn't something that just God was like, you know, what might be a good idea. Maybe we should rescue them. I don't know. They seem to be turning on themselves and killing each other. That's not, that's not how God came to this conclusion. From the beginning, God demonstrated his love. From Genesis chapter 3, the first promise of the gospel. God creates us in this image to connect to him. We reject God. God pursues us. The, the, the coming of Jesus has been so beautifully declared to us that you can see in scripture when Christ will come. We're, we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. Daniel chapter 9. How he will come. The places that he will live, the the price that will be paid, the way he he will give his life, the fact that he'll be resurrected. I mean, prophetically, all that laid out about Jesus so that when he comes, we would recognize it. This isn't some accident that God just drew up last minute. This is the way that God has determined it from the beginning with Adam and Eve. And so he's saying, he's saying to Joseph, Joseph, this isn't an accident. This Christmas story that's being told, like God, God's sovereignty is over all of this. We look at the circumstance, we think how difficult God's looking at the circumstance and seeing his glory working through it. And so in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the prophet, uh, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then in verse 23, he tells us what this particular prophet he wants to identify says, because it relates to Joseph very much so. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, oh, thank God, (laughs) and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So he's saying, um, prophetically, this is what was revealed. This is now what's being fulfilled. And now, what are you going to do about it? Because Joseph could have gotten to that point and been like, I reject her, and I reject the angel, and I'm living a life on my own. Jonah did it. But instead, he walks by faith. He said, you know, the stories that started to unfold between me and Mary, there's tension. I'm walking, trying to figure out how to honor her in this. I found out what she's saying is true. And yet, there's still tension. When you read this Christmas story, just because you get to the end of the Christmas story, it doesn't mean everything was butterflies and roses. They still had battles to fight and they still had adversity to overcome. But Joseph, in, in the midst of this, chooses uh, to walk with God. So then the question becomes, taking a step back from all of us, to, to still ask, how do we find hope in adversity? Can I tell you the foundation for that? I think begins with truth. I mean, that's what the angel's doing for Joseph here. Joseph emotionally is all over the place. He's trying to figure this out. He's got tension in his life. And and the angel is sent by God to bring him down to this one place. Okay, let's start with what's true. And and here's what's true. And the angel gives him a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. A quote 700 years old to prophetically identify how Jesus will arrive so they can walk in understanding of it. And so what you get is this apologetic, not this, I'm an apology, but this defense for the faith, this apologetic in the stand as to who Jesus is. And so the foundation for truth becomes important in in this passage of scripture. When you consider this verse, this verse is a representation of a gamut of uh, apologetic or prophetic apologetic verses throughout the Bible. You know, for the first 1800 years of Christianity, well, not the first 1800s, I should say, especially towards the 1700s, 1800s of Christianity. One of the arguments pitted against Christianity was that uh, the Bible was written after Jesus came. And so when you look at all the prophetic statements, that's what they would say, 1700s, 1800s. Well, the reason they got those so precise is because they wrote it after Jesus came, and so it's not really that profound. And, and, until the 1940s and 50s, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, giving us manuscripts 100 to 200 years older than Jesus to then have to deal with this apologetically. How could the Bible so precisely predict the coming of Christ? Unless by divine hand, I I think even as an unbeliever, uh, when you look at the Bible and you deal with it with intellectual honesty, you have to wrestle with this. Because what the Bible is doing is giving you a truth to stand on for your life. And this isn't something, if you're, being, if you're being intellectually honest, you cannot just sweep under the rug. This is just one of many statements, but when it comes to Jesus and the way he comes to this world and how it's prophetically revealed in scripture, and you have scripture hundreds of years older than Jesus describing the very way Christ would die before that mode of death even existed, that form of torture even existed. How do you deal with that? Can even think as a young man trying to wrestle with those thoughts. Being in my late teens, early 20s, couldn't refute what I was discovering. When it comes to adversity, you have to find a truth to stand on. Uh, I don't think this is. This is unique or or something that we do just exclusively, meaning when it comes to apologetics, apologetics are great um, because it helps us intellectually wrestle, but there's still a heart issue going on. You look at the story of Joseph as it's told here. He's told intellectually by by a messenger from God, right? But it doesn't necessitate that he's going to walk then in that belief. Same's true for us. Like we can share all the apologetics to someone in the world about the truth of who God is, but that still doesn't address the heart. It still doesn't, it may pave the way for the heart to see and understanding you're not throwing your mind away by walking with Christ in this world. In fact, you might be walking in the most intellectual way, I believe, because God created your mind to begin with and God wants you to exercise that. But your heart still has to determine what's going to lead your life. And so when you look at this story, uh, you know, I've said to us before, Those that come to know Christ, 95% of those that come to know Christ do so because of a friend. A close friend sharing their story with them, right? When you see the story of of Joseph unfolding, I think it's worth just recognizing because he dealt with this tension in the beginning of, of his story in verses 18 and 19, that he's not doing this on his own. You know, angel appears, but at the same time, he's, he's been living his life walking with Mary and, and we've seen the way the Bible's described her. He, he knows she's a lady of, of integrity and yet she's trying to get him to con, convince that she's a virgin and, and, and she, he, he knows that she's, she honors God with her, her life. And so dealing with that struggle, trying to figure out still how to honor her because she's lived with integrity, how how does he do that? And now that he's had the angel deliver that, he still gets to now walk with her in this tension that this circumstance has created. Yes, it brings God into this world, but it's not to ignore the battle that they're going to be facing together. I think the, the reality is we need a truth to stand on. Apologetics help with that. But we also need someone to stand with. And here, as this story unfolds, it's not one person isolated to themselves, but it's Mary and Joseph on this journey together. And what you see is God supernaturally intervenes to bring others around them the wise men, the shepherds. And so, when it comes to handling adversity in our lives and trying to find hope in the midst of struggle, it's truth to stand on and someone to stand with. I think of my own journey as a Christian, how those worlds collided. When I I realized there was probably more to life than just myself, though I enjoyed living for myself, interacting with a uh, a Christian and challenging them in their faith. One of the things that they introduced me to early on in my questions was a book written by uh, a man named Josh McDowell. He wrote this book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But you know, one of the things that attracted me to that book was Josh's story. He's still alive today. I'd call him at least one of the modern-day heroes of the Christian faith because of, of just how that book he wrote has made an impact around the world. It's translated in over 40-plus some forty plus languages. But it's, it's written like an encyclopedia, and all it does is go back in Christian history, and it documents, documents the validity of Christianity out, out, outside of Christianity, historical resources you can find in Christianity and outside of Christianity uh, to validate the story of Jesus. But what's, what's unique about this book is that Josh McDowell was not raised in a Christian home. In fact, when he shares his story, um, he, he says that he was raped as a young man from the ages of 6 to 13 by an older man. His dad was known as the town drunk in the city where they lived. And when he got to college, he had a hard heart. In fact, probably anger towards God due to the circumstances he went through. How can a good God exist with this pain? And when he got to college, he started interacting with Christians and they were proposing things to him that he couldn't wrestle or he couldn't, he couldn't explain. And so he went on this investigation in his life and he ended up writing this book while he was in college called evidence demands a verdict. But you see the pain of someone else's story and how he, Josh and sharing that story, Josh McDowell and sharing that story, how, how it can intersect with where we are in our lives. I, I don't exactly share all the things that he's gone through in life, but my life has not been any cakewalk. Yeah, I chose to come to Utah as a pastor. Right? So it's not it's it's not like it's been roses either in butterflies. It's it's there's challenges to it, but anything you do for the Lord, it will have a battle. But can I tell you when it comes to my battle, one of the things that makes it so enjoyable? It's you. I love our church. And this isn't something I walk alone. This is something we get to live in victory in together. Right? And so when you see the story of Joseph unfolding. I and mean, he's got godly influence around him. He loves the Lord. He, found, he finds a truth to stand on and people to stand with. And guys, and, and it, it's biblical. It's why uh, Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. It's recognize that at different places in your life, you're going to have struggles that you go through. But there's a reason God created his church. There's a reason God told us to commune together. There's a reason why when you read the Bible, there's dozens and dozens of one another's in the way that we're supposed to interact with one another. There's a reason God says it's not good to be alone. I'm going to say it's probably because it's not good to be alone, right? Uh, there, there's a reason why we just continue to encourage community in, in, in our lives as as a body of believers. There's a there's a reason I say to you, you know, Sunday's good, but it's an in, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a Christian picture on steroids, man. Like none no, of you go home on Monday and you're like, let me let me read God's word, let me exposiate a 45 minute sermon to myself in order to inspire myself to follow Jesus. That doesn't happen. It's like one time a week that you do that, right? But how do you follow Jesus the rest of the week? Just looking at someone on a Sunday, just sharing a message, that is not it. That is not it. Like if, if we walk out of here and this is all we do for Jesus, we are fooling ourselves in our pursuit of Jesus. God has given you gifts and talents and resources and ability in this world not to just play defense all the time. I realize we're just talking about depression so that and, and finding hopes so that might be more defensive. But man, he's made you more than conquerors. And so it's not when you sit in chairs that you do that, but when you get in circles and you encourage one another and you use your gifts and inspire one another, and that brings me to the shameless plug of connection groups (laughs) that's in your bulletin this week. Like if you want to be a part of what God's doing, you want to encourage people do that, right? There's places to sign up, which, by the way, I need to tell you, the Bruce's Connection Group are not in here. It's because they're full. That's it. It's not because they're not having it. So if you're in the Bruce's Connection Group, um, you're still meeting, okay? So, and, and, and I want to tell you, sometimes you're going to get in groups, and you might be like, these people are too weird for me. Or they may be like, they're too weird for us. But if you feel that, if you get that vibe, don't worry. You're not tied down to any group. Just find a community. Hey, look, if you've moved to Utah, and this is a new place for you, it is not good to be alone. Bible tells us that. Community is important. You may have moved here and you have no family around you. I think what's important for your success as a human being in this world is to create a tribe, create a family, find a place to connect with, to encourage and inspire one another in God. You were made for that. Nowhere in scriptures does it talk about Christianity lived as an isolation to yourself. But to recognize God's doing something beautiful in you and to share that story, even in the struggles, man, even in the struggles, God can do something in that. I would even say maybe most especially in the struggles. As a pastor, I've had opportunities and more this time of year than any time of year. I feel like I've been to the hospital a ridiculous amount. Not that if you're in the hospital, I'll visit you. But I, I'm just at this time of year where I'm like making all these hospital visits. I'm like saying to myself, God, can we like do this in like June or like April? I mean, this is the holiday season. Give them a break. Give them, you know, we need the holiday season and then bad stuff can happen at all the other times of year. But can I tell you the people that tend to do better in hardship? and handle adversity are the ones that have taken the time to invest in relationships and have a support system around them. Now, I'm not telling you to go make friends with everybody in the world. That is impossible. Impossible to do that. Um, in fact, I don't even think it's healthy. I mean, let's, just, let's be honest for a minute. How many Facebook friends you got and how many of them would you really call your friend? Right? I know Facebook uses the term friend, but you know you click through that list sometime and you're like, who is that? How do I know them? That's my friend, right? Like that's, it's, not, it is, it's not about making tons and tons of friends. All I'm saying is make some friends. I mean, we have two services. Who goes to the first service? I don't know. I've never been to first service. That's, uh, so it, in that, it becomes impossible. Alpine Bible Church, it is impossible to know everybody, right? But you can't know somebody. And you can make a difference. Proverbs. A man of too many friends comes to ruin there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother or if you're a lady and sister you need those people when you get in the trench and you have to fight a battle who's the first person you call are they going to let you sulk in the depression and leave you there I'm going to point you to hope how do you do it I think you find a truth to stand on, you find someone to stand with. If you haven't caught it so far, what I'm saying is this. Truth and love are two of the most important pillars of the human life. Now when you look at the story of Joseph, I think his, just his story and sharing it with us, it, it teaches us a little bit about adversity. And let me just go back to it for a moment. I think one of the things he he teaches us in verse 18 and 19. Be open with your struggles. Like he didn't he didn't have to say this to Matthew, who's recording this gospel. We didn't have to know the detail of of his life here. But he's just sharing the greater story of what God is doing. Because he knows it's it's not really about him. You know, one of the beautiful things about Christianity, I, I just love about Christianity, is we're not about status. We're not about who can get to the top. We're about, it's not about making much of me. It's about making much of Jesus. Like when it comes to me in comparison to Jesus, I ain't got nothing to impress you with, all right? But God, God is worth it. And so we're not about making much of ourselves. We're about using what God has given us uh, to, to serve this world to better see the glory of who God is. And, and here in, in Joseph's story, he, he's open uh, about his struggle. One of the best ways to find healing just be open. like Guys, I want to just share my baggage here. Um, you know, I was thinking about getting rid of Mary. I know, shame on me, right? The truth is I was still trying to walk with God in this, and there was some tension here. And this was just my struggle. And I needed some godly influence around me to come beside me and let me know. Like, uh, maybe, you've, maybe I'm alone on this, but have you ever been in that circumstance where you know, you got that friend and you're heading down this negative path and you share that with your friend and they give you all the affirmation to just continue on that path of destruction. And then maybe you're like, and then you got this godly friend and you know what they stand for. And then you start to say out loud all the great influence you got from your other friend. And as you're saying out loud, you're like, this sounds stupid, right? You're like, well, this is not probably the best thing. <laughs> I can't quite figure out what the best solution is, but I feel like I'm just saying dumb stuff and I can't get my tongue to stop. Like, how do I, how do I be different? Right? Well, when you open your mouth around those friends that you know are godly influences, sometimes it gets you to start thinking about the actual things you're saying. You ever get so driven by emotion, you just start saying stuff? And a little bit later, you look back and you're like, what was I talking about, right? Was that even me a minute ago? But it's not until you're in that circle to encourage you down the godly path that it it becomes significant to make a difference in your life. And that's what makes community so important. I'm telling you, by your own, When you get to a place of depression, the general consensus is where you go with that is in further depression. Because all we tend to see is ourself. We look deeper in ourself. And all we found there is darkness. So I'm not just telling you make a friend. I'm telling you make a good one. Make a godly one. Make one, make one that cares enough about you to not just listen to you when you're going through adversity, but also kick you in the butt, right? I mean, there's a balance there, isn't it? Be honest with where you are and discover hope. I mean, this might be whatever you're experiencing in life. It may be the first time you've ever gone through that. You're not going to be the most wise person in the world to handle it. But someone else has. Be open about your struggles. Second is this, find a greater solution than yourself. Now, I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going, to, I'm going to say it more to me, but if it applies to you, then apply it to you. Um, when it comes to depression, I think acknowledging is important, but the danger becomes we start to idolize ourselves. We start to allow ourselves to not only be um, dictated by the circumstance, but become the victim about the future because of our circumstances, it it, it isolates us and doesn't allow us to move forward. Meaning, meaning when I, when I get to a place in my life where I might struggle, I I know, I know my tendency sometimes it's to sulk and it's to look deeper within me and think, "Woe is me and and, and start to uh, start to struggle within myself because I think I am the most important thing in the world. And therefore everything should be about me. And so, because I'm the only one interested in me because I'm on this Island of depression about myself, I just go deeper in me. And the reality is, though my pain may have been real, I start to even idolize me in my depression and make it all about me. Now, when you look at the gospel story here in the first Christmas unfolding, it's not saying that Mary and Joseph had it easy, and if, if they walked a little better in life, everything would go well. I'm not saying just because we walk with God in our lives that we're not going to continue to maybe battle low-lying depression forever. All we're talking about is setting up the right scenario for us to walk in it in a healthy way. And for God to use that to encourage others in the circumstance. And so I think it's important to look to a greater solution outside of yourself. And just to ask yourself, just be honest. Am I worshiping me in this? I mean, one of the healthy things for me, even talking about struggles. When I start to read, when I complain about my life, oh, woe is me. And I start to read about what Mary and Joseph did. I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing? (laughs) Some of the stuff I'm going through, yeah, it may not be easy. But Mary Mary and Joseph found a way to find hope. And I said, how can I I look outside of myself in this circumstance? So be open to your struggle. Find a solution outside of yourself. Next is this. Recognize that adversity can hold a godly experience and reward. And I said this, this to you already, but anything worth doing for God, anything that's going to make a lasting impact for the Lord, it's going to have a battle or it's going to have a sacrifice. But recognize that adversity can hold a godly experience and reward. Now, as Americans... We tend to shy away from adversity because we like comfort, pleasure, and luxury. That is the American dream, right? And, and when you come to Christ, you can sort of take this American ideal and put it in, into Christianity and, and sort of seek this, this form of Christianity out where it's all, it's all about just taking the easy street. But God doesn't necessarily call us to the easy street. And when we shy away from the adversity, we're also moving away from the godly experience and reward that the Lord might want to bring into our lives through it. God, I'm just going to sit on my hands and immobilize the rest of my life. God, I'm going to discover you in these moments. The story of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says that, I prayed to the Lord three times to take away the thorn in the flesh. But God shows up and says, no. My grace is sufficient for you for his strength is made perfect in my weakness. And what God is saying there is, look, I'm not always going to give you, uh, like today, I'm not going to give you the strength for tomorrow. I'm going to give you the strength for tomorrow, tomorrow, right? In your weakness, my strengths made perfect. You ever look at someone in life and you're like, how, how could they do that? Like, if that were me in that situation I feel like I would melt into a puddle of nothingness on the ground. How do they have strength? I think a part of that is it's the grace of God. I think God meets us there. I think we're afraid to necessarily move in it because we might lack the faith. But I think God meets us there. I'm not calling it easy. But I think he promised that. And, and one of the ways I know it is because what's said at the very end of this passage, right? Well, let me, oh, don't have it. In verse 23. It says to you, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Jesus. Or Emmanuel. He uses both in this passage. You know what those themes are creating within our mind? Salvation, God with you. You're not alone. Okay? I could think if I were Joseph, it, life would maybe, maybe have felt a little bit better. Like, you know, God's with him, so so he's got it figured out. God's with the Apostle Paul. His grace is sufficient with me. God's with Joseph. I mean, you know, he, he's working a hard job in his life. He's a carpenter in this time period where they have to use a lot of hand tools, no power tools. But when he gets to the knee and he's praying, he's like, God, God is with me. And so I know you're going to take care of this because this baby ain't going to starve, right? So thank you, Lord, You trusting in God in that. But what about you? You're not raising baby Jesus. Well, if you are, please come talk to me. I need to share some things with you. But but you shouldn't be raising baby Jesus, right? So what about you? I think the promise is still true. When you open up the story in the book of Matthew chapter one, God is with you. When you get to the end of Matthew, the last words Jesus says, I am with you always. So you can read the Christmas story and be like, I believe it. But then you can go out here and live it like an atheist. That promise of God's presence wasn't specific to just Joseph and Mary. Jesus' coming was for you. Jesus' presence is for you. It's all about His grace lavishing His love when we were in sin for you. So when we talk about finding um, godly experience and reward in the midst of adversity, how could I even claim such a promise? Emmanuel, God is with you. Um, One of my favorite figures in the history of Christianity is Charles Spurgeon, so much so that I probably said his name so much that some of you roll your eyes as soon as I say it, but Charles Spurgeon, I'll say it again. Um, But one of the things I love about Charles Spurgeon, he was a pastor in London but he he ministered with transparency. He was authentic when he spoke. I don't think he was about just impressing people. I think he was earnestly seeking God in everything that he stated because, or I shouldn't say everything, but hopefully everything that he stated. Um, Because Charles Spurgeon battled with depression his whole life and he was open about it. You know, one of the interesting things about Spurgeon's life is at, at that point in history, Spurgeon was pastoring the largest church to ever exist by thousands. In fact, when, when church would meet there on Sunday, whatever Spurgeon said, that's what the newspapers wrote on Monday to Saturday. I mean, he was under heavy scrutiny, no doubt probably added to his, his depression. Um, Spurgeon was candid. I also think that was probably the very reason for which the church was so large because if we pull back the curtains on our lives a lot of us have struggles struggles that we haven't even shared with other people battles that we're facing alone but you know one of the things I loved about Spurgeon and one of the reasons I think that made him so successful as well was um, Spurgeon said early on in his life he tried to fight against the depression like as if it didn't exist he just wanted it to go away And then later on, he learned to embrace it. Not because he was like, oh, yippee, you know, I want depression. You know, that's not what he was after. but, But what he said was he recognized in his life in the midst of that adversity, that is the very thing God used to sharpen him as a believer. I mean, what Spurgeon was saying is when he prayed, he felt like he prayed more deeply and earnestly because of the struggle he went through. And that was what God used as a catalyst to drive him to him. And when he taught, he taught more fervently because he clung to those promises in the midst of his struggle. And so the the tool that he at first started to try to fight against and get it to go away became the very thing that he recognized God used him to make him so uh, effective in communicating in this world the hope and the promises of God and seeking God's face in his own life. And so when I get to the end of this and thinking through all of this, and we talk about hope in the midst of adversity, I'm not saying to us that, you know, all of it just goes away. I don't think that the Christmas story, just because we get to the end of the Christmas story, everything was great. I mean, Mary gets told just a little bit later when they take Jesus to the temple that her own heart's going to be ripped out by the death of Christ. But I think they had hope. I think they found a healthy way to walk through it and something ultimately greater to, to, to live for it, because they had a truth to stand on and, and found someone to stand with. First Christmas was not easy. The circumstances were less than ideal, but they had reason to hope. They built community and love. They walked in the greater truth. They were open with their battle, but they didn't fixate on themselves. They're honest with where they were and took steps towards a greater goal outside of themselves. Because I, I think if we struggle, it's important to just stop and say the Christmas story is your story. God, this is the big hope. This is why I make such a big deal about this time of year, even if it's hard. Because ultimately, through Mary, Joseph, Jesus, the story as it just unfolds, it's this story of redemption in history where God brings salvation specifically here, but he's continuing to write that story in me of which I belong. And even in that struggle, God still uses you. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah.